we are right in the middle of a topical sermon series, which is not normative for us, although we will do these from time to time. Typically, we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. We've recently finished the book of Deuteronomy. We're looking forward, or at least I am, perhaps you are, hope you are, looking forward to being in the book of Acts soon. Uh, It just so happens that we're going to read a portion of Acts. However, we aren't going to walk through this portion verse by verse. This just serves to introduce us to the topic we're going to be addressing this Lord's Day morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Acts 2, 41 to 47. Because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand? If you are not able, then please feel free to keep your seat. Acts 2, beginning... In verse 41, Luke writes, as he is carried along by the Spirit of God, these words, So, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I would like to begin this morning by sharing a couple of different stories that help accent the importance of the question we are seeking to answer throughout the remainder of our time together in God's word. The first story begins with a young man still in seminary. Now, there's a great deal of truth to these two stories, but I've changed the names in a couple of details, okay? A couple of details. Based on a true story, I think is what I see from time to time. Movies and novels. To what degree? Well, we'll have to talk about that another time. We'll call this man Tate, this young seminarian. Tate is married to his wife of four years, He has two young children with another on the way. And Tate and his wife have been looking for a church home since they were married. So about four years, they've been in search for a church home and they have begun to get disillusioned by what they perceive to be the state of the evangelical church. They they perceive that the evangelical church is in an unhealthy state. When they think... They may have found a healthy church. They eventually discover something that concerns them, some compromise as they consider it, something that alarms them when they consider the word of God. In fact, the longest they have stayed at any church over the previous four years is six months. Church after church after church they've gone through. Eventually, after much prayer and soul searching, Tate and his wife decide to begin meeting in their home with a few friends. 
They meet each Sunday morning to pray together, sing together, and study the Bible. Their worship is informal. Their worship is familial. It feels very much like a small family. Tate and his family affirm much of what most theologically faithful churches affirm. Over time, however, Tate's few friends that agreed to be a part of this endeavor leave. And what's left is Tate, his wife, and his children in the presence of what is now a family gathering that they eventually begin to call their church. Here's the question. Is this gathering of Tate's family a church? Is this gathering a church? Second story that helps accent the importance of this question. The second story is less about the inception of something new and it's more, more about change. This story begins with an established Baptist church that has been in existence for nearly 150 years. It's got quite a history in the local community. The pastor of this church has been there for 15 years. We will call him Pastor Bill. Sounds like a Baptist pastor, doesn't it? During those 15 years, the congregation has noticed a steady change taking place in the views expressed from the pulpit. Initially, Pastor Bill talked extensively about loving people who were different from them. This message turned into a call to create an environment in which people who look differently or have different lifestyle choices feel welcomed and even feel as if they are a part of the essence of the church culture. Lately, Pastor Bill and the other staff members have been teaching that heterosexual marriage as a standard and a basic binary distinction of gender as male and female are cultural constructs, nowhere expressed in the Bible. The church will be voting soon on whether to become an LGBTQ affirming church. And it looks like the congregation is going to support the change with a few losses. I ask the same question. Is this gathering of people still a church? Is this still worthy of the name church? The question, what makes a gathering of people a genuine church has been asked for a very long time. In fact, in the early church, there were, there were four distinguishing marks of a church that were highlighted. The church is one the church is holy. The church is Catholic, lowercase c, or universal for our purposes. One holy Catholic and the church is apostolic. That is committed to the apostolic doctrine. As we move into the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, these Protestant reformers asked a very similar question. What makes a gathering of believers a church? And, and most Protestant reformers, 16th and 17th centuries, identified two or three marks of the church in various forms that can be summarized in this way. A, a, a true church preaches the gospel. A true church administers the ordinances or the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And a true church, this third mark that oftentimes is subsumed under the second mark, but is often expressed as well, a true church exercises church discipline, accountability for its members. 
So this question, what makes a gathering of people, a bona fide, genuine church, has had relevance throughout church history. And so this morning, I want to ask this same question. What makes a gathering of people a church? And we're going to seek to answer the question over the next two weeks. So this originally began as one sermon. And as sermons tend to do, they, they grow, at least in my office. <laughs> so we're going to answer this question over the next two weeks. And we're going to do it by identifying, if you're taking notes, you can write these down, by identifying six marks of a church. Six marks of a church. We could call these six distinguishing marks of a church. And this morning, we're going to identify and unpack three of them. At least that's my goal. Next Lord's Day, I aim to unpack the other Three, and these marks serve to help us continue in understanding the nature of the church, but they also serve to help us contribute to the health of the church and the growth of the church, the vitality of the church. They help followers of Jesus Christ understand what it means to be a genuine church. I would submit to you there's a great deal of confusion about this in our culture And perhaps one could argue there has been a great deal of confusion throughout church history. Now, a brief caveat is necessary here. I think it will serve us as a congregation, especially as we seek to exude charity and gentleness and love for other followers of Jesus Christ who are in other churches and also evaluate our own local church. Here's the caveat. No church exudes these marks perfectly. I'm going to say that again. No church exudes or embodies these marks perfectly. Every church until the resurrection of the body when Jesus Christ returns will have varying degrees of faithfulness as it relates to each of these marks. That includes First Baptist Powell. This has always been the case and it will remain the case. On the other hand, while these marks don't exist perfectly in any one church or broadly in the universal church, they do exist partially and genuinely in the church. So simply because they don't exist perfectly does not mean they don't exist at all. They exist by God's grace partially and genuinely. Let's turn our attention to identifying what I perceive are the six distinguishing marks of a church. And we read, I mentioned this, I'll mention this again. We read Acts chapter two, verses 41 to 47. We did that for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is we needed to read from somewhere in God's word. But we also did it because I think all six of these marks are found in one way or another in this text, although we're not going to unpack the text in these two sermons. We will be unpacking this text sometime soon. So you can keep that in mind, I think. All six of these are found in Acts chapter two. Here's the first distinguishing mark of a church I would propose to you. First, a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. I'm going to use that word orthodoxy. 
a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. Now, what do I mean by Christian orthodoxy? I mean the essential tenets of the Christian faith. Christian orthodoxy is the collection of beliefs that form the substance of what it means to be a Christian. Christian orthodoxy is just another way of referring to right beliefs and We could even subsume underneath orthodoxy what is oftentimes called orthopraxy, right practice or right living. I would include right living in Christian orthodoxy and we will in just a moment. And so Christian orthodoxy consists of of the gospel, the message about Christ and everything, and let's say it this way, proximately related to the gospel. Everything that is closely related to the gospel of Jesus Christ consists or comprises Christian orthodoxy. And so if you think of Christian orthodoxy as a kind of vibrant center of Christianity, at the nucleus of that center is the gospel. And then everything that is in close relationship or proximity to the gospel really does participate in what we call Christian Orthodoxy. I'll give you an example of this. The belief that there is only one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, the doctrine of the Trinity, is a part of Christian orthodoxy. If someone denies the doctrine of the Trinity, um, they, they may call themselves a number of things, but they cannot justifiably and historically call themselves Christian. So the doctrine of the Trinity is a part of Christian Orthodoxy, But while the doctrine of the Trinity may not be explicitly communicated in the gospel, it is through the gospel that we come to know God the Father through the work of God the Son and by the power of God the Spirit. You see, so it's proximately related to the gospel. It's through the gospel that we come to know God as he really is and as he's revealed himself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, you see? So that's Christian orthodoxy. Luke calls Christian orthodoxy in Acts chapter 2, passage we just read, Acts 2, 42, the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what's central to Christianity. Jude, a little small book in the New Testament, Jude uses the faith as a way of referring to Christian orthodoxy in Jude 3. Here's what he writes. Beloved, although I was very eager to write about our common salvation. Interesting. I was eager to write to you about what we share. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, and here it is, for the faith. Not your faith, subjectively, but the faith objectively. Christian orthodoxy. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what Jude refers to as the faith is what we intend by Christian orthodoxy. The central truths that unite believers in Christ. And notice in Jude 3, actually, jot this down potentially, in Jude 3, Christian orthodoxy is something that's, that's passed down. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints Christian orthodoxy is not something that's being changed, molded, growing, devolving. I've often shared with you the illustration of a server in a restaurant. As a pastor, my primary responsibility 
is not to prepare the meal. My primary responsibility is to take the meal already prepared and simply to deliver it. To hand on, as it were, the Christian faith. Your primary responsibility as a parent to your children is not to concoct the Christian faith or to come up with fresh ways even to communicate the Christian faith, although that matters, fresh ways to communicate old ancient truths, your primary responsibility is simply to pass down the Christian faith. That's what Christianity is all about. Perhaps this is boring to some of you. It excites me. It excites me that what we believe, what we hold dear, is the same thing that brothers and sisters held dear in the second century in Lyon or in the first century in Antioch, where believers in Jesus were first called Christians. Nothing new, really. We're not interested in the novel. We're interested in the ancient, in the lasting, in the eternal. That's Christian orthodoxy. And now again, there are, there is a place to consider prayerfully how to communicate Christian orthodoxy to a new generation. I suspect we could learn a lot about how to do that well from people like Derek and Kristen who were church planners. But what they are seeking to do, certainly communicate in fresh ways, effective ways, but communicate what? The same message that the church has been preaching for thousands of years. So for Luke in Acts 2.42, it's the apostles teaching for Jude. In Jude 3, it's the faith. For Paul in 1 Timothy 6.20, It's the deposit. How about that? The deposit. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 20, to Timothy, who by the way is pastoring the church of Ephesus, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's your job, pastor. Guard what's been given to you. Don't change it. Don't modify it. Guard it and then pass it on. Christian orthodoxy, by the way, does not refer to secondary or tertiary beliefs about which Christians have disagreed from the beginning. I'll never forget, let me give an illustration anecdotally that I think highlights the point I'm making here. I'll never forget being in a Sunday school as a young Christian. I was, I was quite young as a follower of Jesus and I was sitting in a Sunday school and uh, the teacher was teaching. I remember I was at, I was at this church where the Sunday school teacher was expressing a tremendous amount of knowledge of God's word and a love for God's word. And I was just soaking it up, very thankful for that as a, as a young infant, infant in Christ. And Derek mentioned some of, the, some of the infants even that they have the privilege of pastoring and I was one of those infants. And the Sunday school teacher taught at that time on eschatology, which is the study of the last things, uncontroversial topic for Christians. He brought up the topic of the rapture, another uncontroversial topic for Christians. And the teacher suggested that there were Christians who did not hold to the same position on the timing of the rapture. He taught his position and, and, and then he went on to say that there were, there were many Christians that didn't hold to the same position he held to on the timing and on the nature of, of the rapture. At which time, one of the men in the room zealously asserted himself. I'll never forget this. I remember what the man looked like. I don't think I, I'm not sure I ever met him, but I was a brand new Christian. I'm looking at this man. I'd never forget this moment. 
zealously asserted himself that anyone who did not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture directly compromised the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. If you don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, he said, you do not believe in the authority of the Bible. The teacher disagreed and said that while he may disagree with the conclusion of other Christians. Interesting enough, these two brothers had the same view on the rapture with differing degrees of confidence. So the teacher went on to say there are other Christians who who disagreed with both of them. But these other Christians arrived at their conclusion not because they compromised the authority of Scripture, actually because they believed in the authority of Scripture. They arrived at their conclusions through a study of the Word of God. And he was also able to say he disagreed with them. They arrived at the wrong conclusion. But primarily because they had a high view of Scripture. Well, the man never came back to our church. That was his last Sunday. I would submit to you the teacher was correct. Absolutely correct. The dogmatic man's primary failure was not in believing even confidently believing, perhaps, in a pre-tribulation rapture, necessarily. His fundamental failure was in his unwillingness to see this issue as secondary in the body of Christ. This has plagued the evangelical church. We have more confidence in our particularities concerning eschatology than we do in the doctrine of the Trinity. There are more Christians, I'm convinced, more evangelical Christians that can tell you what they believe about the timing and the nature of the rapture than can explain to you a historic and biblically faithful Christian Orthodox view of the Trinity. That's a failure. Moreover, it's an underappreciation for church history. What church history does for us, brothers and sisters, is it tempers us. I think everything is perfectly clear when I'm all alone. And then I have the privilege of walking side, alongside another brother, another sister. Some of them in this church, others of them maybe living 1,800 years ago, which is one of the reasons why I love church history. I've explained that to you a number of times. And I find that some of these brothers and sisters agree on what matters most. In fact, all of them agree on what matters most, but but those other secondary or tertiary issues then begin to bubble up and it helps me identify what is secondary and what is primary, you see? I suspect, at least if I maybe have an accurate assessment of my own heart, I suspect that, that the problem often surfaces, the confusion between primary and secondary and tertiary issues, it often surfaces because, because of an inflated view of myself and my own interpretation. It takes a great deal of humility, I think, to interpret God's authoritative word absolutely, but to do so as a member of the body of Christ, alongside of other members of the body of Christ who help balance us. Well, Christian orthodoxy, and we've got to keep moving here, chasing some rabbits along the way. Christian orthodoxy includes not simply central theological commitments, but it also includes central ethical commitments 
I'm going to mention this. We're not going to unpack it at length, but I do want to say this. So for example, Christian orthodoxy, what is a part of the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ includes doctrines such as the Trinity or the death of Christ or the bodily resurrection of Christ and so forth. But it also includes ethical commitments such as sexual purity, truth speaking, submission to authorities, gentleness, kindness. For example, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, these words, now we know that the law is good. Again, this is 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse nine, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly, sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Now listen to what he says next. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now wait a minute. I thought we were talking about ethics. I thought we were talking about how Christians should live, not what Christians should believe. The apostle Paul doesn't separate the two. To believe rightly is to live rightly. And we live rightly out of the overflow of the gospel at work within us and right beliefs operating in our affections. You see. He goes on to say, verse 11, this sound doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So sound doctrine includes not simply theological commitments, right? You may be reading Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book and glory to God for that. It's a great book. However, as I think Wayne would also say to you, and as every Christian theologian worthy of the name Christian would say to you, your theological commitments are bankrupt if they aren't producing in you a changed life. They're bankrupt. Such orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, is according to and harmonious with and driven by, fueled by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So dishonoring our parents is contrary to Christian orthodoxy. How about that? And it's contrary to the gospel. It's living in a manner that's contrary to the value and the transformation accomplished by Jesus Christ. Having a sexual relationship with anyone other than our spouse is contrary to Christian orthodoxy and contradictory to the gospel. I mean, isn't this what Paul does throughout his epistles? There are these lifestyle problems. For example, the church in Corinth, these lifestyle problems. And what does he do? He takes them back to the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, no, no, you must misunderstand the gospel. If you understood the gospel, if you were embracing the gospel, if you were treasuring Jesus Christ, that would be producing in you transformation. And don't misunderstand what we're suggesting. We're not saying that you've got to be, live in order to become. We're not saying you've got to live a certain life in order to become a Christian. We're saying that if you've come to know who God is through the work of Jesus Christ, 
if you've received the adoption as sons and daughters, not on account of your performance, but on account of Christ's performance in your place. If you've come to realize your own moral bankruptcy and spiritual deficiency, that you're incapable finally of rescuing yourself, that you, you can't bring anything worthy of praise to God, but he's done that for you through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, through his life and obedience, through his death in your place and for your sins and through his bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day. If you've come to embrace that, then, then you're going to begin to function in practice according to how you already are in grace. You see? So in this sense, in this sense, we become Christians by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not on account of works that we have done. And yet, those of us who have become Christians are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And although throughout this life we'll never be perfectly transformed, a day is coming and throughout this life we are being authentically and genuinely transformed. It is happening. And by the way, if you've not come to know this transformation that can be yours not on account of what you have done but on account of what Christ has done, then please consider staying afterward and having a conversation with us. You can meet us again at that room, the crossroads, just to the left as you exit this room. And we would love to talk with you about what it means to embrace Jesus Christ in faith, to surrender to him and to follow him, recognizing that, that like me, like the rest of the people in this room, we bring the problem. God brings a solution. But when he brings a solution in Christ, he doesn't simply forgive us. He begins the process of transforming us. So that's why in the New Testament, these two concepts, Christian belief and Christian ethics or a lifestyle are so closely connected, as we see. Now, we are nearing out of time. I'm going to preach a few more moments, recognizing that you will be hungry before long. But I think you can bear with me a bit longer. So the first the first distinguishing mark of a church, and please, please don't miss this, is a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. A church preaches and embraces Christian orthodoxy. Second, second, a church observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. A church observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. By ordinances, I simply mean those two practices. There are a couple of passages that make this clear. One is Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And we're not going to turn to any of these passages. I'm going to mention them to you. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus exhorts his disciples after his resurrection. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The church has been characterized from the first century as a gathered group of people observing the ordinance or sacrament of baptism. And by that, of course, we mean, this is another sermon altogether. 
We won't unpack all of this, but I do want to mention it to you. By baptism, we mean the immersion of believers in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that to be the practice in the New Testament and what is consistent with what we find throughout Scripture. Baptism signifies, by the way, when someone is immersed, dunked, as it were, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit into the water, and they come out of the water, it signifies their participation in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. But it also signifies an entrance into the body of Christ. One becomes baptized into a new community, a new people, a new gathering the church. And secondly, the second ordinance that the church observes is the Lord's Supper. This is, if baptism is the sign of initiation, it's the kind of entrance into the body of Christ, the Lord's Supper is our ongoing nourishment as members of the body of Christ. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23, 24, and 25. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Again, notice the language. I received, I delivered. It's that simple. That's Christianity. So I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to say in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it's through this practice of eating the bread and drinking the wine or the juice in the name of Jesus Christ that the church gathered proclaims the centrality and sufficiency of the Lord's death until he returns. So the church is distinguished by this mark. It observes the sacraments or the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. In addition to preaching and believing Christian orthodoxy, one, and observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, two, third, and we will finish with this one. You're doing a great job. Third, a church practices discipline. A church practices discipline. Church discipline includes positive instruction. For example, right now, Christians for a very long time have considered the preaching of the word of God discipline. We're being instructed in God's word. We're being transformed by the power of the spirit of God in the word of God. But church discipline also includes correction, rebuke, admonition. To be honest, it's much easier to employ the positive aspect of discipline than it is the negative aspect of discipline. In other words, it's easier to stand up, potentially in the pulpit, at least it is for me, and share the word of God, unpack the word of God, than it is to go to a brother who is persisting in significant, observable, and unrepentant sin, and to tell that brother, I'm deeply concerned about you. This activity is contrary to your faith in Christ. Please turn. Repent and serve the Lord with me. That's challenging, isn't it? And yet we find that this marks the church. This distinguishes the church. 
If you're taking notes, jot this down. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And it's there Jesus highlights or outlines the normative process for corrective discipline in the church. And by the way, it's one of two passages in Matthew's gospel where Jesus uses the title church. But the practice of the church offering rebuke and rescue of its members through that rebuke is found throughout scripture. Just a few passages are worth mentioning here. Galatians 6.1. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's what church discipline is all about, restoration. It's about rescue. It's about love. It's about grace. And it's about seeing the gospel we preach take root in the hearts of God's people. It's about showing the world that the gospel of transformation we preach is not a bankrupt gospel. It protects the name of Christ in the broader community. It's a way of loving the wayward sinner. It's a way of loving the church. And it's a way of loving Christ. Ephesians chapter five, verse 11, Paul exhorts the church in this way. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose those works. Expose them. Titus chapter three, verses 10 and 11. A very difficult passage in terms of application. Paul instructs Titus as he's leading the church in Crete regarding how to respond to someone who is dividing the church. And he writes these words. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Does that sound like church as you imagine it? Warn a divisive person once and then twice. And if they persist, have no more to do with them. In other words, no longer treat them as members. Remove them. He goes on to say, knowing because you know that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Discipline often carries negative connotations, doesn't it? We don't love, who sits around and thinks, you know, I can't wait for the next time I receive discipline. You know, I've never had happen. I've never had my children come and beg me for discipline. Never had that happen. And I suspect you're a lot like they are because I am as well. But I want you to consider a parent's responsibility to his or her child so that you might better understand the nature and purpose of discipline. In fact, Proverbs 13, 24, for example, is actually a powerful, pointed passage about the responsibility of parents to discipline their children, that he who spares the rod hates his children. I would submit to you that our culture suggests the exact opposite of what the word of God teaches. That to spare the rod is loving to a child. But if we're going to believe in the authority and sufficiency of scripture, we've got to affirm that a parent providing Faithful, appropriate discipline for the child is loving for the child. 
And I don't know about you parents, but this is something that I've, that I've tried to teach my children from very early on. I've tried to say to them every single time I have disciplined them. And I do mean every single time. I, perhaps I have failed a few times, but it's become a part of that rhythm and liturgy with us. Every single time I've had to discipline my children, I try to tell them, do you know why I do this? I do this because I love you. And love is not always easy. It's not always easy. Love is me as a parent desiring what is best for you. And it's unloving of me to disregard folly because folly ends in death and the small amount of pain you're going to experience pales in comparison to the kind of pain you will experience if you continue in your foolishness. That's why. That's why parents discipline. Appropriately. Faithfully. That's what church discipline is all about. It's about loving one another well. And so the church is to be marked by by members who aren't merely hearers of the word, but are doers who aren't deceiving themselves. I want to say this as a qualification before we begin to conclude. Jonathan Lehman has written on this. I want to give credit where credit's due, but I do think he's pointed out rightly that we don't always run around policing one another spiritually over every possible sin. I don't go to Pastor Brett, for example, or Pastor Brett comes to me and says something like, hey, you know, I... I discern greed in your heart. Right? Well, how do you know, Brett, that there's greed in my heart? And he says, well, I can just tell. No, no, no. Jonathan Lehman talks about what we, what we find in Scripture is we find church discipline being exercised when a sin is observable. It's an observable sin. You can see it. Everybody can see it. Now, why does that matter? Because it brings shame on the name of Christ. You see? Not only is it observable, but it's significant. Now, this is a topic for another day, but there are, there are degrees of sin in Scripture. As there are degrees of, of judgment and degrees of reward. And if you have any questions about how that works out, just ask Pastor Tim after the service. He'll explain it perfectly. But not only is a sin, must a sin be observable and significant, but it must also be, and this is key, unrepentant. Unrepentant. We all sin daily, but the life of the Christian is marked by repentance. Confession of sin, seeking to turn away from that sin, seeking to honor the Lord through obedience. That's repentance, Church discipline only continues to the final stages of even putting someone outside of membership. According to Matthew chapter 18 or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the member of the church and the follower of Christ is persisting in observable, significant, and unrepentant sin.
I think, who am I, right? I'm a local church pastor at First Baptist Bell. My authority runs out right where the word of God ceases to speak with clarity. But I surmise that one of the greatest deficiencies in the evangelical church in America is its refusal to practice church discipline. And it's ironic to me, brothers and sisters, that as we talk about these marks of a church, that throughout church history, this has been a mark of the church. Loving discipline, loving correction, even being willing to put someone outside of membership. Not shun them, right? Not bar the doors, but put them outside of membership and to tell them, look, please don't observe the Lord's Supper because you're persisting in unrepentant sin. The church's unwillingness to do that has marred the church's witness. And for so many, for so many churches, we've become much more like those who don't know the Lord than those who do know the Lord. And we pick churches, I fear, at times. We pick churches not on the basis of the degrees to which they observe these marks or exude these marks. We often select churches on the basis of stylistic preferences, right? Musical styles. How often do we hear that? I'm in the area and I'm looking for a church and I can almost guarantee you after that statement, something about the musical stylistic preference is gonna follow. Is it wrong to have a preference for a style of music? No. But it's a spiritual pathology and sickness to elevate that beyond the value of the historic and biblical marks of a church. When I'm willing to leave a church that exudes these marks because I disagree with the style in favor of a church that does not exude these marks as faithfully because I agree with the style, let me submit to you, brothers and sisters, I have a spiritual pathology and a deficiency. That's why this matters. This matters immensely for followers of Jesus Christ. We've identified three distinguishing marks of a church and I've taken far more of your time than I planned on. These three marks are, one, a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. Second, a church observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Third, a church practices the loving correction and instruction of its members through discipline. Not easy, but good. And it's this church, this kind of church that Christ promised to build. It's this church that endures throughout the age in between Christ's first and second comings. And it's this church about which Samuel John Stone wrote these comforting words. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her till the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege we have had this morning of meditating on what makes a gathering of people a church. Father, we confess to you this morning that we do not embody these marks perfectly. Forgive us. Forgive me, Father, as as a pastor. Continue to show us how it is that your spirit is at work among us and through us for your good pleasure. Guard us against judgmentalism and help us to instead be able to faithfully offer biblical critique with generosity and kindness. Oh God, we need to be corrected with generosity. May we be willing to offer such correction with generosity. So continue your work. Continue your work to build the church for the glory of your name and the name of your son among all peoples, nations, tongues, and tribes. And his name and for his sake we pray these things and all God's people said,